Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the all-new Living Well podcast by Jefferson Health, formerly known as the Health Nexus podcast. We're delivering the same great interviews with Jefferson Health experts on topics to help support your physical and mental well-being. My name is Jess Lopez. And I'm Carly Williams. In this episode, Dr. Ritu Grewal joins the podcast to give us her tips on how to get more restorative sleep. And I could really use them. Lately, I've had this weird pattern of waking up wide-eyed and ready for the day at 4 a.m. Oh gosh, not a fan of that for you. I know my sleep routine could be improved, starting with not using my phone as much before bed. Well, thankfully, Dr. Grewal hits on all these issues and more. Let's get into our interview. Dr. Grewal specializes in sleep medicine and treats conditions including sleep deprivation, insomnia, and inadequate sleep hygiene. I have a feeling my own is probably lacking. We're very happy to have you here with us, Dr. Grewal. Thank you for inviting me. I have been at Jefferson for the last approximately 15 years or so. My background is pulmonary and sleep medicine, and I practice both at Jefferson, and I also teach first-year medical students. Can you tell us why sleep is so important? What is happening in our bodies when we sleep, and what happens when we get poor sleep? There's a lot that we understand about why sleep is important, and there's also a lot that we don't know. But what we do know is that sleep and getting the adequate amount of sleep seems to be very important for our bodies to function and for us to be able to function during the daytime. From the time we are born, as we get older, our sleep needs change. But for most adults, I would say approximately 95% of us, we need at least seven to eight hours of sleep. And there's some people who need more and some people who need less. Now, we do know that there are certain changes that happen in our bodies when we sleep, and that seems to be very important for the normal functioning of our our bodies and of our uh, emotions. So, for instance, I can give you one small example. People who don't get enough hours of sleep, there are certain changes that occur in our hormones that make us want to eat more or eat less. So people who are sleep deprived, tend to have these changes in these hormones called ghrelin and leptin. Ghrelin is a hormone that makes us want to eat more. And leptin is a satiety hormone. Then there's some other changes that occur in sleep. For instance, our breathing slows down when we go to sleep. So there's some changes that occur in our respiratory system. And there's some changes that occur in our hearts. Like, you know, everything seems to slow down at night. We also go through these different stages of sleep. Some of those stages we understand. And some we don't understand, but there are a lot of changes that occur. And those changes that occur in our sleep at night seem to be very important for normal functioning of the human body. So a lot of information out there right now about nighttime routines and developing them. Can you walk us through your ideal nighttime routine and give us some tips on how to develop one? Having a nighttime routine is really important, right? And to be more or less consistent in that. Different things work for different people, but you need to have something where you kind of wind down from your day and do something that calms your brain down. And that routine, whichever it is, whatever it works for anyone is fine. But you have a few minutes, so 10, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, where you are separating yourself from your day 
and going towards sleep. So I can tell you what my routine is. And I'm not saying that that routine has to work for, for everyone. But I, I need to do this to be able to wind down and to get away from my day. I'll get into bed and I like to read. Usually it's fiction. And I'll read for 10, 20 minutes. And then before I go to sleep, my last thing, it sounds a little, a little weird. But I like to do the New York Times mini crossword puzzle. And so it's some people may say, well, that's more activating, but it just helps me. It's my routine. It works for me. I do it. I feel good about it. I turn the lights off and I go to sleep. And so that's my routine. And I do that, I would say, most nights. That kind of leads to the next question about what are ideal sleep environments? Generally speaking, the room should be dark and quiet. You want to keep the temperature a little bit on the cooler side, 60 to 65 degrees. It's really important that there be no electronics on in the background. Mm -hmm. TV is a no-no because it can keep you in a light sleep. Now, I do have patients who will say, you know what? I'm scared of sleeping in the dark. I need some sound to help me sleep. Now, they may be living in a neighborhood where there's a lot of environmental noise or they may be scared of sleeping in the dark, that's fine. You go with it. You don't want to have all the lights on. Put a nightlight on. I have a nightlight in my room. I don't like sleeping in complete darkness. So a nightlight is good. The other thing is you need some sound, right? Well, then can you get one of those white noise makers? Those are very effective. But some people say, no, I really need the noise from that TV. It helps me feel more secure. I'll say, all right, then put some soft, soothing, music in the background. Okay. Don't put on headphones. You don't want them blaring into your ears. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason for this because we are going through different stages of sleep when we sleep. It's not like we just close our eyes and everything just goes numb or quiet in our brains. No, we are going through these different stages of sleep. We start off by going into a light sleep and then a semi-deep sleep and then a deep sleep, which is in the first third of the night. And that deep sleep is really important. And then we're cycling every 90 minutes to 120 minutes. We're cycling through these different stages of sleep. And then we also go into REM sleep. Every 90 minutes, we may surface into a light sleep from which it is easy for our eyes to wake up or for our eyes to open. But it's important that we go back to sleep. So the environment has to be correct for us to be able to cycle through these sleeps and keep going back into those different stages of sleep. Mm -hmm. And how much sleep do we actually need? What I generally tell my patients, shoot for seven to eight hours of sleep. But the best indicator of the amount of sleep or the quality of your sleep is how you feel during the day without having to overload up on the caffeine to stay awake and not to feel fatigued. And what about the people who sleep five hours or less a night and they think that they feel fine? You know, it's a little bit hard to distinguish. Is it that you just need five hours of sleep and then you're getting by during the day by overloading up on caffeine or energy drinks to keep yourself awake? Because if that's the case, then you're not doing yourself any good, right? If you just need five hours of sleep and you do fine during the day without overloading up on the caffeine, then you're probably in that small percentage who's doing okay with just five hours of sleep, who we call short sleepers. But lack of sleep really does have consequences to one's health. We call this chronic sleep deprivation. And we know from a lot of studies that that does lead to weight gain. It does lead to depression. It does lead to increased risk for high blood pressure and diabetes. 
And even there's some studies that showing that it probably leads to increased risk for coronary artery disease. So one has to be really careful when they say, I just need five hours of sleep. Are you okay with five hours of sleep and then just having a couple of cups of coffee in the morning to get yourself going, but then you're doing fine during the day? Well, then you're in that small, small category of people who just need five hours of sleep. Well, I am not in that category, but that is very good to know. Is there such a thing as getting too much sleep? And I am also not in this category. 94 to 95% of us need about that seven to nine hours of sleep. And there's some in either side who need less sleep and some people need more sleep. And so again, if you're in that category and you say, well, I need 10 hours of sleep, but once I get my 10 hours of sleep, I feel refreshed and alert during the day and I feel good. Well, then you're in that small category. But if you find that, again, it's a very small percentage of people on either side, but if you are needing 10, 12, 13 hours of sleep, we want to make sure that there is no sleep disorder that's accounting for that. So it's a good idea to get a sleep evaluation in those cases. And you've mentioned all of the effects that can happen if you're not getting enough sleep, but can you talk a little bit about the importance of getting that consistent sleep? I think those routines and getting that consistent sleep is really important for good health. I feel pretty strongly that sleep should not be shortchanged because we really need to allow ourselves to spend that one third of the day sleeping for the other two thirds to function well. So it's really important that we give that sleep a priority and understand the long-term effects, not only just the short-term effects of being sleep deprived. The next day you feel lousy, you feel tired, you're reaching for the wrong foods, you may be driving and you may be sleepy while driving. It just doesn't make you feel good. And if that's happening on a daily basis, then that's not good for your day-to-day functioning. It's not good for long-term health. We're curious about sleep mistakes you see patients making. Let's start with melatonin. Is it true it's actually not good for you to take it each night? There are a few issues with melatonin. Melatonin is unregulated. It comes as an herbal supplement. So when you go out to the pharmacy and you just pick up a bottle of melatonin, you really don't know what you're getting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's really not a good sedative, at least in the adult population. So I wouldn't recommend it for somebody to help them sleep. However, we do use melatonin in very, very low doses for certain sleep disorders. We use it for patients who are night owls, who have delayed sleep phase, where they go to sleep late, but it's really low doses and timed. And for another sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder, again, after we've made those diagnoses and we use it, but as generally as a sleeping medicine, I would not recommend it. It's not effective and you don't know what you're getting. I was thinking that what you're prescribing to people who have these sleep disorders would be much different than what we are picking up at a target. Absolutely. As a general rule to just help you get to sleep, if one is having a problem falling off to sleep or staying asleep, then that's insomnia. Then we need to do different things for that. Okay. Are there any safe alternatives if you're experiencing trouble sleeping? Maybe you don't think you're at an insomnia stage, but... Is there anything you could do? Generally, I think the first step is to make sure you're practicing good sleep hygiene. The environment is very important. The room should be dark and quiet, minimal lights. The temperature should be lowered a little bit. 
make sure you don't have caffeine or any caffeinated beverages six, maybe even eight hours before going to bed. The blood alcohol level should be really low when you go to sleep. So you want to make sure you're not drinking too much alcohol because even though alcohol, when the blood alcohol level is high, it may help you fall off to sleep, but it disturbs those sleep stages and it can make certain sleep disorders worse not having a heavy meal before going to bed, but some people wake up in the middle of the night hungry. So maybe having a high protein, a little high fat like peanut butter and crackers just before going to bed if they're waking up in the middle of the night hungry. So I think Mm -hmm. practicing good sleep hygiene is always the first step, making sure that you're giving yourself the opportunity to get that proper sleep at night, having that bedtime routine, right? Uh, setting aside a worry time. If you've got a lot of stress going on and you get into bed and that's where you start thinking, you're warm and comfortable in bed and then you start thinking about your day-to-day issues or your frustrations, you don't want to do that. And that's why that nighttime routine, doing something relaxing helps. If people find that when they get into bed, they become very active, their brain becomes active, they start thinking about their day, then maybe set aside a worry time in the evening. Say, okay, I've got 15 minutes and I'm going to spend all my time worrying about this. Avoiding long naps during the day, because if you nap during the day, and if it's a long nap, then it impairs your ability to sleep at night. One of the things about sleep is that there's a neurotransmitter that starts building up in our brain from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we go to sleep. It's called adenosine. It's a waste product that builds up in the brain. It helps us go to sleep. If you take a long nap in the afternoon, that level comes down. Hmm. If you have caffeine late in the afternoon or evening, that level comes down. So you have to be mindful of all these things, do all these things. And if you make it part of your routine, it's not difficult. And now if after that, if somebody still has a problem sleeping at night, then it's time to get a sleep evaluation. What is the sweet spot with naps, daytime naps? Is it 20 minutes? Yeah. If somebody says, I'm still sleepy during the day and I need to function in the afternoon, I need to drive. I would say a short nap, set an alarm on your phone, no more than 20 to 30 minutes, a power nap. If you're doing a night shift and you have to drive home and it's a long commute, take a short power nap so that you're safe. If you take more than an hour, that's not good. That's going to definitely impair your ability to fall off to sleep at night. What are your thoughts on sharing beds with partners? Can sleeping beside someone be detrimental to the quality of sleep you're getting or beneficial? I've seen some couples on TikTok proudly share they sleep in separate beds in order to get better sleep. Oh, I think it's perfectly okay to share a bed with your partner. In fact, that's part of that feeling safe and comfortable and secure. People shouldn't automatically say, well, I get better sleep if I don't share a bed with my partner. There are some instances where one partner is snoring, and that's a common complaint I hear. They're snoring loudly, and that disturbs the other partner, right? So I think there are two ways of going about it. I think if somebody is snoring, especially a male partner is snoring, there's a higher chance of having sleep apnea, get evaluated for it. And there are some treatments for snoring. And if all else fails, your partner doesn't want to get sleep evaluation, you can use earplugs. Not ideal, but I think you can use earplugs. Usually the main issue that I hear is that their partner is snoring and that keeps them up at night. 
So there are treatments out there for snoring, but I think if someone is snoring loudly, you hear pauses, you know, you're witnessing pauses in their breathing, they should be evaluated for sleep apnea. Last possible sleep mistake is our snooze buttons. Should we even have a snooze button or should we (laughs) hear our alarm and just get out of bed? Yeah. In all honesty, I have a snooze button and I hit it once and then it goes off after 10 minutes. Okay. Those 10 minutes just allows me to wake up a little slowly. It's built into my routine. So I don't have a problem with it. I know that, okay, in 10 minutes, I will get up. So it allows me to kind of wake up slowly, hitting the snooze button once, as long as then you are able to get out of bed. But if you start hitting the snooze button and you set that snooze for one hour before your desired wake up time, that is not good. You don't want to do that because what you're disrupting is a lot of that REM sleep. REM is sleep is what we get in the last few couple of hours. In fact, that's all REM sleep, right? Where we do our bizarre dreaming. Now, we don't really know the purpose of REM sleep, but it seems to be important. So if you're hitting the snooze button and you're setting the snooze for one, one and a half hours before, that's wasted time. You really should not be doing it. If you're hitting the snooze button multiple times, there's a problem there, right? You may want to get a sleep evaluation. I'm the problem. It's me. (laughs) I am struggling with my snooze button. And it's interesting that the bizarre dreaming happens mostly in those last hours of sleep. Yes. Because I tend to remember all of my dreams. And I wonder, it's especially when I'm snoozing for an hour that they become much more vivid in my brain. And you're disrupting that, right? So you don't want to hit the snooze button multiple times. It may be the fact that you're setting your, because you're having a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. So you want to go back to the start of the night and see what exactly you're doing. Because Mm -hmm. are you allowing yourself to get that quantity and quality of sleep that you need? And the other thing is what I find is it's okay to wake, like people wake up once or twice at night. And especially as we get older, we do wake up once or twice, maybe to go to the bathroom. But the important thing is to have the conditions right to be able to go back to sleep. Don't automatically look at your phone. I tell myself when I wake up in the night, I never, ever look at my phone. I don't want to see anything on that phone. Don't go on your social media accounts. Don't look at emails. Just don't give yourself the opportunity to go back to sleep. That's the important thing. That is a lot easier said than done, but I really think that that would help with a lot of sleep issues. If you find that you can't help it, you you automatically look at the phone. Put your phone on the other side of the room where you cannot reach it. Because once you look at your phone, you're going on social media, you're checking emails out, you become wide awake. Then it gets difficult to fall back to sleep. And then that's not good. That's not good at all. Yeah, Jess and I were talking about sometimes we use our phones as our flashlights to get to the bathroom at night. But like you mentioned, I think maybe just getting a nightlight would really help with that just to illuminate a little something near the restroom. Absolutely. Nightlights are great. Put a nightlight on. Avoid looking at that phone. The phone I find is the biggest distraction. Phone and TV are the biggest distractions during the night. So whatever you can do is to keep the phone away. Don't look at the phone. Even if one wakes up in the middle of the night, let's say to go to the bathroom, right? Go to the bathroom. Don't even look at the time on your phone or on your watch if you're wearing it. Because let's say you have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and you wake up and you say, oh my God, it's 3.30. 
only have an hour to fall off to sleep. Now your brain has become very active. You don't want that. Now you're wide awake. Now you're worrying about the time. So try to avoid looking at the phone and the time. Just go to the bathroom or get a sip of water and then try to go back to bed. That's great advice. I'm really going to try to implement that. (laughs) Can you speak a little about the difference between having a bout of bad sleep versus something like insomnia or another sleep disorder? Once in a while, everyone has had a bad night of sleep, right? And if it's just happening once in a while, that's fine. Go with it. Don't stress about it. Don't overthink it. Now, if somebody is having a problem falling off to sleep, I would say at least three nights a week, difficulty falling off to sleep, staying asleep or waking up too early and then just feeling exhausted during the day. And it's been going on for a few months. That's what we call chronic insomnia, at least three months. Now, you know, that's the time when then you really need to get a sleep evaluation and get some help. And there are different ways of how we deal with insomnia. We can give sleep medicines in the short term, but long term sleep medicines are not good. They lose their effectiveness and they also come with side effects. So the best thing for people who have long term or what we call chronic insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That's really helpful. We teach a few things in that. One is not spending too much time in bed. You spend less time in bed than you need to. Some people try to make up for having bad nights of sleep by spending more time in bed and trying to go to sleep too early. That's not good. So we want to increase that drive to sleep. And if the sleep problems are persisting, then one should get a sleep evaluation. And what does a sleep evaluation look like? Is there anything leading up to that that you could be journaling or documenting? Or do you just show up and do an evaluation? Depends on what one is coming for. One can just show up and one can just get a comprehensive sleep evaluation. But if the issue is insomnia, where you have a problem falling off to sleep, staying asleep, waking up too early, just feeling exhausted, you could keep a two-week sleep diary before you show up. You know, what time do you get into bed? What time do you think you fell off to sleep? And you do that the following day. How many times did you wake up? How long were you awake for? What time did you get out of bed in the morning? How many naps did you take during the day? You can keep a two-week diary if insomnia is the problem and come with that for the sleep evaluation. If it's an evaluation for somebody who's a night owl, can't go to bed, can't go to sleep until two o'clock in the morning, but I have to wake up at six o'clock to get ready for work or go for classes. I'm only getting four hours of sleep. You may want to keep that two-week sleep diary before you come. If you're coming because you've been told by your bed partner that you snore, you stop breathing in your sleep, you're tired and sleepy during the day, then that's an evaluation for sleep apnea. So it just depends, right, on what they're coming for. If it's not easy to keep a sleep diary, just come for the sleep evaluation. We're all board certified sleep doctors. We take a very comprehensive sleep history in terms of the bedtime routines. And then we're looking for symptoms of specific sleep disorders. And then medications other medical conditions that patients have that can impact sleep. So there are a lot of medical conditions, arthritis, pain, heart issues, lung issues, all this can get worse during sleep without people realizing it. So we look at all that. And should we consider tracking devices like the Apple Watch or Aura Ring valuable resources that can offer us insights into our sleep patterns? 
There's so much of that right now. And some of these wearables have been looked at and compared to what we measure for sleep in the sleep lab. When we do a sleep study, we've got EEG recordings to look at the different stages of sleep and when somebody goes to sleep. And some of these wearables have been compared to what we measure in the sleep lab. They're really not very accurate when they say you woke up so many times or you had so many hours of REM sleep or deep sleep. That's really not accurate. So I don't think trackers are very useful. It can give you a general estimate of the hours of sleep you got, and that's fine. But all that in-between stuff about awakenings and arousals and all that is really not helpful. Mm. And it's not accurate also. I feel like I've read before that if you climb into bed and you aren't able to fall asleep, you should get out of bed, that you don't want your bed to be associated as a stressful place. So if you're just having trouble, get out, try and do something that makes you tired and then go back in. Yeah, that's part of what we call cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's called stimulus control therapy. So you don't want that bed to be where, you know, you start off the night by saying, you look at your bed and you say, oh, I'm going to have a bad night of sleep. So that thought shouldn't come in. So we want to associate the bed with something pleasant. At that point, we want you to get out of bed, go to another room, get away from the bed and start and do something again, relaxing. that takes your mind away. You know, I always say, make yourself comfortable on a couch, listen to an audio recording. When you start feeling sleepy, then get back into bed. Now, having said that, I also know it's not an easy thing to ask somebody to do, especially in the winter. Your bed is nice and warm, right? And you're asking somebody to get out of bed, go to another room. And so I really use that for patients who have really bad insomnia and the bed has become a stressful place because we want to associate the bed with sleep. So that association has to be strong. So in those cases, we'll tell them to get out of bed, go to another room. But for your average person, I would say, you know what, do the same thing that you did at the start of the night. If you like to listen to music or you want to listen to your podcast or your audio book or read, well, if that helps you wind down back again in the middle of the night, do it in bed. And thinking about how we can tell if we're getting good sleep, getting into those deep sleep phases at night is waking up feeling tired a sign that you're getting bad sleep. I get that a lot. I wake up feeling tired. When we wake up in the morning, very few of us just jump out of bed, wide awake and ready to start a day. That's not reality. We all have something called sleep inertia, where our bodies are getting used waking up. We've been lying in bed. Our muscles actually become hypotonic during sleep, which means that they relax a lot during sleep. In REM sleep, our bodies actually get close to being paralyzed. So when we wake up in the morning, it's called sleep inertia. It takes time for us, our bodies, our brains to get into that wake state. So one should not expect to wake up feeling wide awake and refreshed. That's sleep inertia and that's normal. Some people need a couple of cups of coffee to get going. I need at least two or three cups of coffee, a hot shower, walk my dog before I become fully awake. The best indicator of the quality and quantity of your sleep is not how you feel when you wake up in the morning, but how you feel during the day. That's the best indicator of the quality of your sleep and the quantity. Was your sleep adequate and good enough? If you feel refreshed and alert during the day, it's all good. Well, mostly good. 
I should say. And what about night shift workers? Do you have any special sleep tips for them? That's a tough one, right? It's not only just the night shift, but people who do rotating shifts. That's a real, real issue. Some people are night owls and they function fine working at night and sleeping during the day. But that's really very few people. But night shift work and rotating shift is part of work society. So it's there to stay. It's not going away. A few tips on how to improve sleep during the day. So it's very difficult for most of us to sleep during the day. Our bodies are made for us to sleep at night and be awake during the day. If one is going to drive home and there's a long commute, you want to make sure that if you're sleepy, you take a short power nap. Don't want to have an accident on the road. Avoid any caffeine, again, at least six hours before you're going to go to sleep. Very important, wear dark glasses on your drive home. You don't want that sunlight to hit your eyes because you become more alert. When you get home, make sure the room is dark and quiet and give yourself that opportunity to sleep. Don't get involved doing housework. Don't look at emails. It's very difficult to get that amount of sleep, that seven hours of sleep we talked about. So I would say if you get five or six hours, then that's good. And if you're going back to work at night, take a nap before going back to work. That one hour nap, one, one and a half hours will help you then stay alert at night. Any final thoughts on sleep, Dr. Grewal? I think the important thing is that if you've done everything correctly and there's still a problem in how you feel during the day, you're sleepy and tired during the day, you're having too many awakenings at night, you're having symptoms of sleep disorders, right? Like sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, or some patients enact their dreams, or you're relying a lot on sleep medicines to help you sleep, I would really recommend people get a sleep evaluation. I don't think it's a good idea for people to take sleep medicines forever. Once in a while, it's fine. For a short period of time, it's fine. But if one is relying on sleep medicines to help you sleep, and it's been going on for a long time, there are some better tools out there. I would really encourage people to get a sleep evaluation. Okay, 2023 goal established. Stop pressing the snooze button. I'm a little worried, Carly. I've been seriously snoozing. Okay, well, I support that and will hold you accountable if you hold me accountable to buying a nightlight instead of using my phone at night. Okay, deal. Reminder, we publish full episode transcripts on the Living Well blog. We'll link that page in the show notes. If you enjoy our podcast, we truly appreciate a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if there are topics you'd love to hear more about, please email us at livingwell at jefferson.edu. Production support for today's episode provided by Brittany Raffalak and Barbara Henderson. We're your hosts, Jess Lopez and Carly Williams. Thank you for listening and sweet dreams.